This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Good evening, this is Bird Shooter, and this is episode number 31. Uh, tonight we're going to speak with Ben Montgomery. He is the author and New York Times bestseller of a book called Grandma Gatewood's Walk. Um, I've long known of uh, Emma Gatewood. She was the uh, first woman to thru-hike the AT in 1955. But confess I knew nothing of her early life and the domestic abuse that she endured while she raised 11 kids in uh, southeast Ohio. Uh, Ben's a distant relative. He's a Tampa Bay staff writer and Pulitzer Prize finalist. And he's going to give us an intimate look at uh, Emma Gatewood and the uh, legacy that she's left behind. Unfortunately, 30 minutes of the interview has some uh, background noise, which I hope you'll manage through because this is a fascinating look at an AT Hall of Famer and uh, one of the most colorful and inspirational people that uh, have paved the way for the AT today. So here's the show. Hey, so this is Bird Shooter, and I'd like to welcome Ben Montgomery to the show tonight. He's a staff writer for the Tampa Bay Times, and he's the uh, author of Grandma Gatewood's Walk. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about this extraordinary lady who was the first woman to thru-hike the AT, yet most uh, know very little of her early life, which Ben documents well in his book. So, uh, Ben, thanks for joining us this evening. Oh, it's my sincere pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, so to set the stage, you're a professional writer, a uh, reporter for the Tam- Tampa Bay Times, and the uh, listeners should know a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2010 in local reporting. W- was there a specific article that earned you uh, that honor? Uh, it, was a, it was a series of stories that uh, I and two colleagues did about the um, a place called the Dozier School for Boys, which was this... Um, nightmarish state-run reform school in North Florida that uh, uh, at one point was the largest reform school in the country and had been open since 1900. They finally closed it down in 2011. Uh, but a bunch, of, um, a bunch of old men came forward in 2008 to tell stories of being abused at the school and uh, stories about their classmates who went missing and uh, so we sort of sunk our teeth into it and found um, found a lot, lot of evidence that uh, kids had been abused and, and some had been uh, neglected uh, in, you know, extreme ways, um, uh, for really for a hundred years. Uh, the place was rife with scandal and uh, every time some uh, someone from the outside showed up there and and was curious about the place and, and learned of the abuse that caused a scandal around the, you know, around across the state. And uh, but but then people sort of, um, you know, the, the place would promise to reform itself and people would turn away and they'd go right back to beating boys. And um, we turned up uh, a little cemetery on the campus that uh, the state said was occupied by 31 uh, dead boys who had died over the years. Uh, and it and, uh Sort of in this weird um, stroke of uh, coincidence, uh, uh, an anthropologist at the University of South Florida got involved and decided to try to actually document who was buried at the cemetery. And so he used ground-penetrating radar and found that there were 55 burials rather than 31. 
Um, oh, so wow. they wound up getting permission to unearth these boys and um, try to identify them and try to figure out cause of death and then return the remains to the families. Uh, so that's that's actually all come to a head. There's seven years of my life, but it's kind of all come to a head recently. The, um, the university filed its kind of final report, and the state has agreed to pay the pay the families, uh, or, the, or the, there's some bills that have been introduced in this leg- legislature to pay the families of the boys who died on campus. So that Wow. Well, yeah. yeah, and it's a theme that we're going to talk about tonight, right? Abuse, which um, I had no idea. I didn't know the early life of Grandma Gatewood, Emma Gatewood, and that that was such a part of her life growing up, or I shouldn't say growing up, but raising children. Yeah. Um, so you've written you've written on a lot of topics. I understand for the paper. What what got you interested in the in the Emma Gatewood story originally? Um, I've I've always been interested in the Emma Gatewood story. So she's uh, she's my mother's great aunt. Uh, my mother never met her. Um, I was born in seventy eight. She died in seventy three. So we missed each other by five years. Uh, but she, I grew up hearing stories about her from, from my mom. And these are just family stories that had been passed down. Um, so I, she's always kind of had a place in my mind. I, know, I always knew that I had this, as my mother described her, this eccentric uh, relative who was the first woman to solo throughout the AT. Uh, but I'd never done much thinking about her until um, this is sort of the writer's dream, right? So I did a... a, a I did a newspaper story about an unsolved lynching in North Florida that got a lot of attention and uh, wound up uh, somehow in front of an agent in New York, uh, Jane Distel, who uh, sent me an email saying, I, you know, I really love your writing style and I don't, I don't know if you have, uh, I don't think the, the lynching story should be expanded into a book, but I wonder if you have any other ideas. And, you know, I sort of, I've been doing this for 15 years and kind of always something I dreamed of to have an agent approach me and say, do you have an idea? And so I sent her two. And uh, one was about a dude who uh, is kind of the best living jailbreak. He's escaped from prison 13 times and has lived this hilarious southern rebel life. Uh, and then uh, and, and then I sent her a couple of lines about Grandma Gatewood. Um, at this point, I'd done practically zero reporting. I was just relying on uh, the, the, the stories that I knew about her. Uh, and, and my agent ate it up. She said, this is the one. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's do this. And, uh, and off to the races we went. Yeah, and, and I'm glad somebody wrote about it because I, I really didn't know anything about her previous to uh, her kind of through hiking in 1955, which yeah. she started then at the southern terminus of the AT at Mount Elglethorpe in Georgia, it was moved to Springer Mountain in 1958, which is where it is to this day. Um, I read that you had done some hiking on the Appalachian Trail as part of your research. You you were actually on Oglethorpe. What what was it like in 19? I guess what 2013 was when you were there. Uh, it would have been 2012, I believe. Um, what was it like? It was a fall. It was a fall day, uh, so the leaves were off the trees. Um, Oglethorpe is uh, the top of Oglethorpe anyways right now is private property and so and so uh, and, there, and there are actually no trespassing signs posted on the little dirt road that kind of runs up to the top but I parked my car outside of this fence which was open and um, ignored the no trespassing signs and 
uh, sort of snuck up there to get a look around, and it's sort of unremarkable, you know. That, um, there were a few houses along the, the, the single-lane gravel road leading up there, but uh, the top, there's no incredible vista or anything on the top. It's pretty much just um, it's, it's not a bald, so, uh, you know, there, there are trees up there. Uh, nonetheless, I I, um, I uh, had a compass and decided to uh, you know just just stand up there and take it in and and try to p imagine what it looked like in '55. Uh, and and th that's the uh, th that's the thing I tried to do. I did very very little hiking on the AT. I dropped into spots that I knew would be important to the book, the spots that were important to her. Um, which I knew from her journals. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to see the southern terminus. I wanted to see the northern terminus for myself. Uh, I wanted to see about 15 spots in between the two. Um, but it was kind of just chasing her ghost, you know, um, uh, standing in the, in the spots that she stood and imagining what it, what it would have looked like 50 years before. Yeah, how was it different than you thought it would be? Uh, Oglethorpe, you mean, or yeah, actually Oglethorpe and maybe even Katahdin and some of the other places you uh, visited. You know, I I think Katahdin is pretty much the same. Uh, we hi we hired a um, we hired a guide, a guy named Paul Shanacondro, who is the um, uh, the s trails superintendent for Baxter State Park, and I sent Paul uh, the pages of uh, Grandma Gatewood's trail journal for that first hike that dealt with um, her ascent of Katahdin and Paul used those and some old maps um, to figure out the uh, the approach that she would have taken and it's actually Hunt Spur is the exact same today as it was in 55 she would have gotten up the exact same way the approach up the uh, Penobscot was a little different and of course the you know 99% of the AT is different today than it was when she did it in 55. Uh, they move it all the time for um, erosion prevention and, uh, you know, better views and whatever. Uh, but but Katahdin remains very much the same hike. So I feel like that stretch of it um, was actually like the closest we would have come to walking in her footsteps. Uh, the other parts, you know, there's... there's um, I don't know the the little town of Harper's Ferry. She she writes about climbing the bluffs over on the Maryland side of the river and sitting on uh, sitting on the bluffs and, and looking down on um, on uh, Harper's Ferry uh, on the Fourth of July and uh, sort of a, 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 an important experience for her. And I think I, I'm pretty sure I found the exact bluffs that she was talking about. Um, and Harper's Ferry really hasn't changed all that much. At least the you know the historical section of Harper's Ferry, so sure. you know if you squint a little bit, you could kind of imagine what she what she would have seen. Yeah, well, one of the things that struck me in your book was how different the South was back in the fifties. You know that, that there was, uh, as you said, still a fair amount of moonshining going on and a lot of distrust of the federal government. And um, that that was interesting to me in your book was just to read about the old South in the fifties. Now there's so many you know, mountain cabins up there, and it's, uh, I'm sure it's very different than when she went through, you know, much more rural back then than it would be now. Yeah, and, and you know, at that time, it, it crossed a lot of private property. Um, uh, 
you know, it was less populated, uh, and I mean, this one experience stands out to me. She walks up to this house, and the, you know, the old lady of the house is is the one out working in the yard, and the man of the house is sitting up on the porch drinking iced tea, and she uh, she asks the lady, "Hey, can I? Would you mind if I slept in your barn or something?" And she says, "We have to talk to my husband." Nemo went up to talk to this man, and he uh, was suspicious. And he asked her, "Did you know? Did Washington send you?" She he he, he thought she was an agent for the for the government, and yeah, she uh, right. she tried to prove who she was by showing some pictures of her grandkids. And uh, he still wasn't having any of it; wouldn't let her stay there. But I, so few people had you know had through hiked at that time that I think. I'm pretty sure the locals really didn't even know what the AT was or that it ran by their places. So um, she she bumped up against a lot of suspicious people in the in the lower Appalachians. Yeah, sure. So can you help and to talk about Emma specifically? Yeah. Can you can you help the listeners with a little of her backstory? Because I think what, what was most interesting to me in the book was her her life um, before she got married and then you know raising children before she hiked the trail. Yeah, absolutely. She was so she was born in uh, 1898 and um, in southeastern Ohio, and and uh, uh, grew up as any rural kid would have at the time. Um, you know, going to church on Sundays and uh, working on the farm and helping her people. And uh, she got married young. She went up. Uh, she went to school through the eighth grade, which is where her local school. Um, what do you call it? Where, where, uh, you know, there's the highest grade you could get. So she actually repeated eighth grade a few times just to get more learning. Uh, and then uh, met her husband at the age of 18. And he was um, PC Gatewood. He was a school teacher at the time. He was considered a, a pretty good catch uh, in those days. Uh, not bad looking, had a stable job. Um, she wasn't necessarily ready to get married when he proposed to her. Uh, but he pressured her into it a little bit. Said, "If you don't do it now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave and and never come back." And so, uh, so she said yes. And uh, and this uh, this started this relationship that uh, was just a cycle of abuse and sexual assault. Uh, and, and, you know, it would carry on for, it would carry on for 30 years. Um, on top of the abuse, she, she was, she was counted on to help, uh, run their, run their farm. Um, they raised uh, vegetables, which she tended to by kerosene lantern in the morning before the sun came up. Uh, she had child after child, just about one every couple of years, uh, until she had given birth to 11, uh, two miscarriages. Um, and the, and the whole time, uh, and it, 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 she, she lit, she lived, she, she, uh, she knew, you know, just like, like people did in those days, especially during the great depression, she knew that nothing should go to waste. And so she, um, she knew what plants were edible. She knew, uh, she knew how to can meat and can vegetables and um, and make uh, uh, 
what do you call it? Uh, apple applesauce, uh, apple butter. I mean, everything everything was used. She had a root cellar full of uh, canned vegetables, um, and uh, and raised these kids up to to do the same thing, and you know, pass her knowledge on to them. This whole time, she is uh, she's taking terrible beatings from uh, from her from her husband from PC uh, and that started very early on um, and she she'd write later that she never uh, she never bore a child without taking a beating from him so every time she was pregnant she um, she she took a beating from her husband hey, so let me ask you Ben because I had known of, of uh, Grandma Gatewood since you know since the 90s when I hiked but nothing was ever really said about the abuse and it's a big part of the story without a doubt did I mean did this really come to light in your book or was it known publicly before that I don't think it was known publicly before that um, her it was, it was a family secret you know I mean this was a rural small town I don't think I don't think anybody um, you know, everybody mind their own business. Nobody wanted to intercede on her behalf, uh, even if they knew about it. And the kids, uh, the kids knew about it. When I started reporting, four of her eleven children were still alive, um, and it took just a little bit of prying. Uh, and uh, you know, her the, the first interview I did was with Lucy Gatewood Seeds, her youngest daughter, and. Um, and Lucy was pretty open about it, you know. It took took me asking a, a handful of questions before Lucy was like, "My father was a bad man." Uh, and once she started telling stories, um, you know, I approached the other kids and I'd ask them, "Same thing. Well, tell me about your father." And I, I heard he uh, he abused your mother. Can you talk about that? And they all had specific memories of it. But no, never in a never in a newspaper article did I ever read anything about it. Um, in fact, she told most of the reporters that she met on the trail in 55 on her first through hike, as word was getting out, she told them she was a widow. Right. Uh, I remember that. Yeah. So I'm not sure anybody even, you know, it, it, it sort of nullified all the questions about her husband. Um, I'm not sure anybody and, and so, asked. And so, Ben, one question I had for you was, I mean, you know, you're, you're family in a sense, you're, you know, maybe distant family, but you're still family. Do you, do you think that her children would have opened up to you had you not been family? It's a fine question. Um, when I first contacted Lucy, who's kind of been the keeper of the flame, she kept all her mother's trail journals and all her correspondence and her scrapbooks. Um, you know, I think it helped that we knew some of the same people. Uh, but she said to me, I've, I've been waiting for somebody like you to come along. So she knew, you know, she knew what her mother had done and, 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 and knew that somebody would be interested at some point in giving her a serious biographical treatment. Um, so the timing was, you know, the timing was right, I think, more than anything. It did help having that family connection, though. So one thing that I read in the book that really hit me, and, and maybe you can expand on this a little bit, was the fact that it was Emma Gatewood and not her husband, PC, that got arrested for the domestic violence. And fortunately, a mayor, and I think the town was Milton in West Virginia, um, recognized that something wasn't right and that 
he basically gave her a place to stay and got her a job and essentially helped her get out of a bad situation. But um, do you want to maybe expand on that a little bit? Did I did I tell that correctly? Yeah, uh, you did. This was a, a, a difficult time for, for me reporting because uh, the people who were present for their last fight had very different memories, which is not uncommon. You know, you're talking about um, the early 1940s, so they're, they're, they're recalling something 60, 70 years ago. Uh, but uh, the, the stories were consistent enough that this, this, um, this last fight involved, uh, you know, PC attacking Emma and hurting her so badly uh, that she, you know, she felt like she was, if, if she continued the relationship, he was going to kill her. And um, he convinced a uh, friend of his who was uh, some kind of official in Milton, a justice of peace or something like that, that Emma was crazy and that she needed to uh, be thrown in jail. And um, and one, one relative recalls that uh, at the end of this fight, PC came in and Emma hurled a five-pound sack of flour at him, and it connected squarely with his face and exploded in a, you know, in a big cloud on him. And that's when he went and got the uh, this buddy of his. But in any in any event, all the tellings were consistent that Emma got thrown in jail uh, by this by this friend of PC's, and the mayor of the little town recognized that she was an abused spouse and that she wasn't crazy, uh, and. Um, and at the same time, PC was deciding he was done, and he was packing his stuff up back at the at the farm. Um, so they, uh, yeah, that was so that was the last straw. And after that, uh, even though it was incredibly rare at the time, uh, she filed for divorce, and a judge uh, there in West Virginia granted granted her the divorce. Yeah, and I mean, so PC must have been charismatic, though, for people that didn't realize that he had such a violent temper because he eventually became mayor of another small town in the area correct a absolutely yeah he was a, a two or three term mayor of cross city ohio and and he was charismatic his children remember going to church uh and when the pastor was finished he would was finished with the sermon you know everybody's ready to go home he would open the floor if anybody had anything to say and pc would stand up and deliver his own sermon um, uh, he was a sharp guy, uh, had had a lot of schooling. Uh, he was, for all I could learn, he was respected in the community. Uh, I think pe people around there were more likely to doubt Emma than, than, you know, than, than they were, um, PC. Yeah, which was obviously part of the problem. So in interviewing her, her family and she had 11 kids and by the time she threw hike the trail 23 grandkids um I, i'm just curious i, I know you, you only had a chance to interview four of her children but who who provided the most interesting color on uh, grandma gatewood yeah they all had their own interesting pieces of her life but i really uh i really got to know and like lucy who i i remain in contact with lucy was the youngest uh, and again she was the keeper of uh, her, her mother's flame, so to speak. Uh, Lucy occasionally delivers lectures about her mom. Not anymore. She's uh, she's in a nursing home, unfortunately, now. But 
Um, but she, for years, has delivered lectures about her mother for uh, the Appalachian Trail uh, Museum and Hall of Fame and for different hiking groups. Um, she's been to the gathering a couple of times. Uh, and she, and she's spunky. You know, she she's a scrapbooker herself. So the first time I showed up to meet with her to do an interview in uh, at her home in Jacksonville, Florida, she gave me a scrapbook, and it contained all of our correspondence and a ton of information about her mother and some of her mother's uh, journal entries. And, um, she, I, you know, for all intents and purposes, had she not done what she'd done to preserve her mother's record, the, the book couldn't have been done. Um, she really so, did a, a solid service. So, Ben, ben that actually... Um was a question I had for you, and that is she gave you access to journal entries from her hike on the trail, her hikes, really, um, letters that she had written, photos that she had taken. Um, what, what surprised you most in kind of uh, your research, just between the letters and the journal entries and the photos? Well, uh, there are a couple of anecdotes that um, that blew me away. Uh, that. First of all, generally speaking, the coolest thing I thought about about Emma was that um, you know during her hike she's meeting all these reporters starting in Roanoke and, uh, and and you know after that just about every town she after the news broke just about every town she walked through somebody was there waiting to interview her um, but I got the sense that these reporters would mail clippings of their stories about her back to her home in Ohio so that she could have them when when she returned. Um, and so she has Emma kept scrapbooks. She'd paste them all into a scrapbook. And what she'd do is edit them. So if there were any factual mistakes, she would correct them on the page, which, uh, I'm a newspaper guy and I don't want to disparage newspaper people, but we make mistakes. Um, we get heights wrong and we get quotes wrong and she would correct, uh, all of those things. Um, which was very cool and very useful. Uh, one, one person quoted her, I think, as saying dang once, and I forget the context of it, but, but she wrote in the margin, I'd never say, you know, I'd never use this word. This is not correct. That's um, awesome. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, um, the, the, the kind of naivete in which she wrote in her, uh, of her experiences in her journals is just hilarious to me. She never makes mention of a hurricane. Uh, she writes that it, you know, a, a, a typical entry would be slogged nine miles through rain today, through rain and water today. All our right. stuff is wet. Uh, but she never once mentions the two hurricanes that she hiked through that killed uh, hundreds of people and, you know, were at that time the, the most expensive storms on, on, on record in the U.S. Um, but as she's hiking, you know, the, the newspapers run stories about her. The top headline on, on 1A would be, uh, you know, storm uh, cost billions of dollars. And then the subhead would be like, you know, more than 200 dead, uh, coffins unearthed in whatever town, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then, you know, below the fold on the front, on the same page would be hiking granny still trying to, you know, still trying to finish the Appalachian Trail. 
But it, it, that that was actually one of the questions I had for you because that was a notoriously bad summer in 1955 with two hurricanes. Like they both hit in the Northeast, if I understand correctly, right? Well, they made landfall uh, at uh, roughly North Carolina and then just um, surged up the eastern seaboard, uh, kind of hovering over half over land and half over water. So they just they they drenched the region, especially um, New York and New England. In, in your book, I had noticed, noted that you had uh, indicated 200 people died in that storm. Emma was out in that hurricane, in both hurricanes that summer. Do, do you want to retell? Because a couple of the events in the book that I thought were in- interesting was the group of Harlem gangsters that essentially helped her cross many streams during that hurricane, one of the hurricanes. Yeah. And then I think it was the second hurricane at Clarendon Gorge in Vermont um, a couple Navy guys uh, possibly saved her life getting across the gorge, right, or through the stream. Yeah, yeah. The, so the first, uh, the, the, the first story you reference, uh, she's hiking along. She's hiking through rain. She's about ready to put up for the night, and she comes upon a lean-to. This is in uh, the Green Mountains, and um, and she writes in her diary that this lean-to was occupied by eight. Uh, as she says, colored boys uh, from and two white leaders from a Catholic parish in Harlem. And she writes that the boys were a little rambunctious, uh, but they were sweet enough. They offered her some of their corn pone, and she accepted. And she stayed and visited for a little bit, and then she decided the lean-to would have been too crowded for her to sleep in that night, so she was going to push on. She hikes a couple of miles further up the trail and runs into an impassable uh, stream that uh, was because of the flooding. And so she turns around and, and decides to put up with um, with these boys and their their Catholic leaders. And uh, she said she had trouble falling asleep that night because one of the, she was in a corner and one of the boys kept throwing his arm over her while she slept and she'd move it back. And you know, keep in mind this is the summer of '55. This is uh, a year after Brown versus Board of Education. This is um, just before Rosa Parks uh, uh, refused to give up her bus seat. So. Even if it's Vermont, there's still like racial tension across the country. Um, anyhow, she gets up uh, the next morning and, and, and rides on the back of one of these strapping young men across this swollen creek uh, and then bids him adieu and takes off. And she, uh, she never writes anything more about him. Uh, I tracked down... Um, I was actually talking to a guy who who is a uh, a major long distance hiker. He's crossed the country six times, and I forget his first name is Steve. I forget his last name, but he he said I was just interviewing him about long walks, and he said, "Hey, uh, I I know a thing about Grandma Gatewood that you might be interested in," and he pointed me to a chapter in a book uh, that a friend of his had written before he died, and this friend was one of those white Catholic leaders that Emma had met on the trail. And he tells the story that the summer of 55 was hot and incredibly violent in, in Harlem. Uh, gang, gangs were fighting over every square inch of concrete. And uh, the problem was so bad and it was so murderous and violent that summer that the, um, the person in charge of the, the, the Catholic uh, parish in Harlem gave him the edict. He was a young uh, seminarian give him and his buddy and uh, the edict identify the forehead honchos of these two rival gangs 
and invite them on an all-expense-paid trip to the Green Mountains of Vermont. Y'all camp out for a while and, and see if you can't do something to broker the peace. And so, and so these are the boys that uh, these are the boys that Emma um, slept with that night, and uh, and who helped her uh, cross this swollen stream the next day. And, and that same book recounts that she, uh, th this Catholic leader, got a a postcard from her when she had finished the trail, saying, uh, "I owe my life to those boys. Tell them they can come visit me anytime they're in." Uh, southeastern Ohio, southeastern Ohio. So I thought that was hilarious, no, and none of her family knew that story. So it was pretty cool sharing what I'd learned with them. Yeah, I love that part of the book. I especially like the fact that you said that those boys probably couldn't resist an all expense all expense paid vacation in Vermont. Yeah, right. So uh, and then and, which, which, the Navy boys, I, I, I Clarendon Gorge, I've only seen on YouTube and. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. It is awesome, and I can't imagine going through there without a bridge. Because if you had torrential rain, that that would be deadly there. Yeah, and there are a handful of YouTube clips where you you can tell it's flood stage, and it's incredible. Uh, but she she approaches and finds the bridge washed out, the footbridge washed out, and finds it impassable. And she had left a couple of um, couple of boys she had slept with the night before who were out of the Navy on vacate or on a nine day camping trip. Uh, and so she sat down on the bank and waited for them to come and they came along and walked up, up Creek to see if, uh, it was passable further North or South or whatever. And they, they couldn't find a way to get across. So they decided if they were all going to get across to tie her using parachute cord between them and the three of them, uh, <laughs> the three of them, uh, uh, step by step crossed, uh, across this flood stage, swollen Clarendon Gorge together. Um, and, and the hilarious thing was she writes in a journal that she told him, uh, after they got across and got untied, she said, well, boys, you got grandma across and she changed out of her wet clothes and took off. And, uh, I tracked both of those guys down. They're still alive. One is in Sarasota, Florida. And, uh, I, I asked him about that and he, he recounted his memory of the experience. And he said, it was so scary that to this day. Uh, I still have nightmares about that about that experience. Yeah, I, I remember that from the book, and I think it's kind of a theme actually that you have in the book is just the, uh, you know, the amount to which she benefited from strangers who uh, fed her, they gave her water, they gave her shelter. She slept in many porches. A lot of people invited her into their houses. Um, I mean, was this almost kind of karma for her? Because she had been pretty generous to others in earlier years, especially during the Depression. And I think you wrote in your book when a lot of the city folks had come to the country looking for work or looking for food, really. So, um, I mean, I guess karma was in her favor, right? Yeah, something was working uh, in her favor. Uh, I, I'm not she I mean, she just could not have done it without uh, without the leaning on strangers without the kindness of uh people who are willing to let her sleep in their homes or uh game wardens who are willing to take her in feed her and um yeah it's a a, a, a ton of trail magic before that was a common term you know so as she got farther farther down the trail ben she um as you said i guess from roanoke on more and more news people picked up the story and she got to the point where she was kind of hounded by 
by reporters. Do you, I mean, do you think she enjoyed the press, or do you think she endured the press? <laughs> I, I, near the end, I think it was more endurance. Um, uh, I don't want to jump ahead on you, but uh, she um, she really stopped liking the press uh, a, a few years later when she decided to hike the uh, Oregon Trail uh, and. We can get there if you want to. If you want to question later on, but I, you know, I actually just want to get to my, one of my favorite quotes in your book was how one of the reporters said she hit hit like a mule. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I, I don't I don't know what she hit him with, and I think it was the umbrella that she used on the Oregon Trail, right? It was the umbrella, and at that point she was that was um, fifty nine, and she was seventy one years old, and she uh, she just hated stopping. People would. There was so much attention on that walk, and she's walking down the highway, you know, so there was so much attention. People would see her and pull off and say, oh, you're Grandma Gaywood. We read about you in the paper, and they would want to take photos with her, and she said, the hardest thing is, you know, once I stop, it's hard to get going again, and so she started to get annoyed by people who wanted to stop, and um, this um, reporter, photographer uh, for a local newspaper in Oregon jumped out of the bushes and started snapping her photograph and she just continued to walk and then as she passed him she whacked him with her umbrella (laughs) i got a good laugh out of that yeah and of course immediately apologized and and started crying she was a little bit out of her head at that point about you know 1800 miles into that walk yeah and so i actually had a section here where i thought we could talk about her legacy but i just had a couple final questions on the uh on the appalachian trail portion of her her hiking Um, so another thing that I really enjoyed in the book was that, and most people probably don't realize that in 1955, when she hiked the AT, it wasn't her first attempt. She had tried to go southbound in 1954, got into the hundred mile wilderness, broke her glasses, got lost, and, um, essentially got saved by some Rangers that a year later she ran into at the end of her hike, right? Going northbound. Do you, do you want to tell that story? Yeah, that was, that was cool. So they said, uh. Yeah, she was in a bad way. She got lost uh, and, and, like you said, broke her glasses and kind of laid down to die at one point. I mean, she was she was, didn't know how she was going to get out of this situation. She had seen a plane uh, come low overhead, a search plane, and she tried to wave it down, didn't feel like anybody saw her, and eventually decided to give it one more shot and found her way back to the trail and hiked back up. And when she uh, approached these rangers in, in Maine, um, they were playing horseshoes, and she she said, y'all been looking for me. And, uh, and they said, this is no place for a woman of your age. You need to go home. And she felt defeated. Um, but, uh, the next year decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this. And so that return, uh, to, uh, I believe it was Rainbow Lake, uh, that, that return for her when she met those same Rangers at the, at the very end, I think was a, um, a moment of real triumph. You know, she was able to say, well, <laughs> I've come from Georgia, and uh, you guys didn't think I could do it, and here I am. Redemption. Yeah, they actually gave her the same cabin, right? The same cabin she was in the year before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. And, you know, the other thing that struck me as you kind of wrap up that first year in 55 when she hiked was what it cost to thru-hike back in 1955. 200 bucks, 10 cents a mile? Yeah, well, if you're, you know, if you're... Uh, bunking up with uh, strangers and getting fed by people along the trail uh it's not uh not an expensive thing i don't think 
You know, she, I met a guy, uh, this fellow's name is um, Thomason. Uh, his mother and father had a hostel that I think they still run. His mom and dad are dead. His dad was a two or three term governor. Uh, Oxford, um, sorry, Oxnard, I think, uh, New Hampshire. You know this place, they're, they're, they, they pass out um, pancake batter uh, okay. for free to people who stay with them. Anyhow, he remembered, uh, he remembered as a boy, uh, Emma, you know, there's a knock at the door, and it's about dinner time, and his mother opened the door, and there stood, uh, and there stood Emma Gatewood, and she said, um, I'm Grandma Gatewood, I'm hiking the Appalachian Trail, what's for dinner? And just kind of walked past, <laughs> walked past his mother, you know, invited himself <laughs> in, yeah, so... You know, if you're doing it uh, that way, it's not a terribly expensive thing, I don't think. Well, and to your point, uh, in later years, because she ended up essentially doing three hikes on the AT, I mean, complete hikes of the trail, yeah. she was pretty much a celebrity. I mean, she had it much easier on her second and section hiking of third attempt, right? Yep. And, and she she was a, um, a great at, at corresponding. She took names of everybody she met on the trail, everybody except... Uh, uh, Laker, is it Dorothy Laker, the second woman? She didn't like her much. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Okay. But, I don't remember that in the book. Oh, yeah, it's in there. It's in there. Uh, 57 was uh, Laker's first uh, attempt, and Emma doesn't write about her at all. And I think <sighs> in Dorothy's account, she wrote about Emma much, but uh, the story is they kept hopscotching each other. They'd pass each other, and they just refused to talk to each other. I don't know what the tension was, but... Uh, That's funny. Yeah, but anyhow, she, uh, she, uh, she, she. Oh, she kept the names of of uh, practically everybody she met on the trail. When she finished, she would write to them and say thank you, you know, and whatever. And then, uh, and then before she set out the next time, she would, you know, she'd send them a a, a postcard or a letter saying, "Hey, I'm going to be back on the trail. I hope to see you again." So a lot of people knew when to expect her. Right. So you've actually teed me up perfectly, Ben, for her um, her legacy, which I kind of wanted to talk through, and then maybe just some kind of closing questions for you about the book and uh, maybe some future projects you have. Sure. Um, so in terms of leg- legacy, just to help the listeners out here, because I know you know, obviously know very well, Ben, uh, 1955, she finishes the AT. She was basically the talk of the country, probably one of the most talked about people that year. Yeah. She hiked the AT three times. Uh, 55, 57, as you just stated, and then she pieced together some hikes on the AT between 58 and 64, mostly, that had her knock it out. Yeah. In 59, she walks the Oregon Trail from Missouri to Oregon. Yeah. In 1960, she finishes the Long Trail, became a founding member of the Buckeye Trail, and continued to work Long days doing trail maintenance. Even I think as late as '82, she was working 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. on on trails, right? Uh, 70, 72, so. yeah. Oh, 72. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, '82 sounded. That'd be kind of tough to work those kind of hours. Yeah. But I, I think most importantly, she set the stage for oh, women. No, they, I'm sorry, for I, I misunderstood you. I thought you were saying 1982. Yeah, no, she she worked in, you know, all, uh, right up until the end. Uh, but that would have been uh, 1972 at the age of 82. Oh, yeah. So pretty impressive. I mean, at 82 years old, she's still logging almost 12-hour days doing trail maintenance. Trail maintenance. I, I don't know if I could do that now. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know? She was a tough lady. 
Well, and we haven't really talked about that, just how tough she was, how um, I think she almost, well, I was going to save this for the closing, and that was just about how the automotive uh, use of Americans essentially changed our life. But let me save that yeah. because just to stay on her legacy for a second, sure. am I missing anything? I mean, she did set the stage for female through hiking, not just on the AT, but in general. I think today 30% of through hikers on the AT are women. But yeah. did I miss anything that she did? Because she did accomplish a lot. I think you knocked, I think you knocked it out. Uh, you know, this the subtitle obviously is the inspiring story of the woman who saved the Appalachian Trail, and that, that raises the hankles, I think, a little bit in the trail community because you can point to a number of people um, who did uh, who did good things for the trail. Uh, but I make the argument that in terms of public attention, you know, nobody paid any attention at all to Earl Schaefer. He he he, um, you know, he wasn't known until until after his hike. Uh, and, and uh, Gene uh, Espy, same thing. There were a couple of newspaper stories in his um, in his local paper in, in Macon, Georgia. Nobody brought. Um, I mean, the attention that she brought to the trail was unprecedented. And then the 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 thing was, she was critical of it. She uh, in a in a feature story in Sports Illustrated, which was a year old at the time. Uh, she said, you know, it's a, an Indian would laugh at this trail. It takes you down and up over every, uh, you know, over the tallest mountains. It's not the easiest way to get through. Uh, she was critical of the blowdown. She was critical of the sections that weren't blazed properly. And I think this was kind of embarrassing to some of the uh, trail maintenance groups along the way. And so this led to, um, you know, number one, uh, uh, more attention than Anybody, a lot of a lot of people in America, the first time they came in contact with the AT was reading about this hiking grandma, and then number two, uh, the, the 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 people charged with uh, the maintenance of the AT um, took her criticism seriously and, and did a better job for everybody who came after her. Yeah, how, how do you think um, she she wanted to be remembered in terms of the AT? Yeah. Um, it's hard to say because she, you know, she, she was this sort of dichotomy of humble and and uh, and ego driven. Um, I, I feel like she didn't necessarily know or think that she would be remembered uh, as the first woman to solo through hike, um, but uh, but she she knew enough to say they're going to you know to tell her daughters they're going to build monuments to me. And, and, um, and she, turned out she was right. Sure enough, there's a there's a, a big beautiful stone at the trailhead at Grandma Gatewood's uh, trail in Hocking Hills, Ohio, um, and her bust in the in the uh, AT Museum and Hall of Fame. Um, and, and you've been you've been to the AT Museum. That was one of the questions I had for you: is if you'd seen her trademark Ked tennis shoes. I have. I've been there. I've not seen in person the uh, the pair that they have. I think in Damascus at the sporting goods shop. Um, but I've seen pictures of them. But yeah, I've 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 been to the museum, which by the way is a lovely place. I I uh, I went to an event there and um, love those people. Uh, Red, I mean, Red Bull, that's Larry, Pen Pennsylvania. Is that where that is? Yeah, I think Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. Okay, that's a beautiful town. Sure enough. 
Hey, so you teed me up perfectly for Hocking Hills State Park. I actually, I grew up, I mean, not probably 30, 45 minutes from there. It's one of the first memories I have of hiking with my family as a kid. Um, I, I loved how you closed the book at Hocking Hills State Park. Yeah. And, and maybe maybe I'll let you explain the significance of that because, you know, the listeners are going to associate Emma Gatewood with the AT, but uh, Hocking Hills was kind of her spiritual home, right? Absolutely. She said it was the uh, most beautiful um, uh, uh, geography she'd, she'd ever seen of you know, all the places that she'd been. And she put in somewhere close to 14,000 miles starting at age 67. Um, so the, uh, yeah, the Hawking Hill State Park is, is lovely in and of itself. And there's a six-mile uh, trail called the Grandma Gatewoods Trail that um, is just lovely. It takes you through this wonderful uh, uh, gorge that uh, are filled with that, that's filled, filled with um, uh, interesting trees and, and beautiful uh, flora uh, and waterfalls that freeze over in the wintertime. And uh, Emma, in her later years, she led a hike through there, the winter hike, uh, in January. And I, I had closed the book out, uh, but I felt like there was, it needed something more. And so kind of on a whim, just before I had to turn the manuscript in, I called her do- her daughter, uh, not not Lucy Louise, her second youngest, and I said, Louise, would you care to go with me on the? Um, uh, or no, I told her I was I told her I was going to Ohio and and told her what I what I planned to do. I was going to do this winter through hike, and I had no idea about it at the time. I just knew they had a Grandma Gatewood uh, uh, through hike. I'm, I'm uh, a walk on her trail. And Louise says, well, I'll go with you. And Louise was getting up in years. In fact, she'd die a short time after that. But, um, and, uh, and, man, it was so cool. There were, there were I think they had 5,000 people there that day. Uh, Amazing. That's incredible. I had no idea that, that, that she was still drawing those kind of crowds. It was unreal. It was unreal. And, and this was, a, this was a, a hike that she led every year right up until the very end. In fact, the last time... Uh, she she tried to lead the hike. She couldn't make it the whole way, and she had to be carried, uh, 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 you know, for the rest of the trail by a couple of men. And so the next year, which turns out was her final year uh, on this earth, she um, she stood just at the trailhead and greeted all of her old friends that came in. But to know that people still remember her and that five thousand people would show up to take part in this hike from I counted license plates from. You know, from all over, uh, at least ten different states, people people who've driven in just to take part in this winter hike. It was a very cool experience. Yeah, I, I, the way you closed the perfect the 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 book couldn't have been more perfect. Oh, I mean, it, uh, it you wrapped it up perfectly, which is really hard because she had an amazing life. Yeah. Um, so to kind of I guess wrap this up and ask you some kind of closing questions. Yeah. W- one of the themes, and I touched on this earlier, that you kind of have in the book is the fact that in the fifties. Our world was changing. You know, automo- automobiles were much more readily available. They were affordable. People were buying them like crazy. And the practice of walking kind of started to pass with the times. Yeah. Um, you walked to work, I read, as part of your research on this book. And, and then that became a story in itself, as I understand. Do you, do you want to uh, explain that to the listeners? Yeah, I was just trying to get in in the head of a pedestrian. Emma never drove, and so if she wanted to visit a friend, she'd she'd walk you know ten, twelve, thirteen miles, um, 
to, to visit. And it was just part of who she was. And so I'd, I guess as an attempt to try to get in her head, and I was reading all this stuff about walking, and uh, I, I decided to do an experiment to kind of shoehorn my book research into my newspaper work. Um, and so I started walking to work every day. And we have an office in Tampa. I live in Tampa. We have an office here. It was about nine miles round trip. Nothing to it. It was fantastic, kind of life changing. Uh, this is not a place where a lot of people walk, especially during the summer. So it's kind of like a pilgrim in a strange land. Uh, but then uh, for the kind of finale uh, on a on a the last day of my experiment, I had to go to a meeting in St. Petersburg, and I thought I can't give it up now. So St. Pete is about uh, 26 miles from my front door to my office in St. Pete, and uh, so I did that round trip, and it remains the longest walk I've taken in 24 hours, um, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 miles. Um, and it, it, didn't, it, didn't it get picked up by a uh, – I mean, it became a big story, though, right? Because yeah. Just the fact that, you you know, people don't do it anymore. Yeah, and it was cool. Uh, I got invited to South by Southwest to talk about it, of all things, but – it was really cool to see, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing social media kind of the whole time. And so I was encouraging people to, to do their own experiments. Oh, and this just happened to be on the anniversary of the um, publication of Thoreau's essay called Walking uh, in Atlanta Magazine. Uh, and it was 150 years old in 2012. So I'm not a geologist. I can't do that math. But um, but uh a lot of people got involved, and, and folks across the country started uh, walking to work, and that you know it felt like being a part of a a big old walking family, and um, and it was it kind of became a spiritual thing for me. It was you know especially on that long on that long walk on the last day, uh, I saw things I don't know if I'll ever see again, and maybe it was, it was connecting with the. You know, with being outdoors, being on foot, and putting one the, the the patter of putting one one foot in front of the other, all those things you experience on the AT, I'm sure. Um, but there's something there's something moving about it that really changed my life and certainly changed the way I live. Uh, it, you almost have to wonder if we've lost our way and certainly our health by relying so much on the automobile, right? Yeah, and that's I mean, the '50s that was the era that the the Interstate highway system was being built. Uh, automobiles were beginning to, you know, be affordable in twos and threes to families who were moving in big numbers to the suburbs. Uh, we started to rely on the car a lot more. In 1958, of American families had a television set. By the end of the decade, that, that number was 80%. Um, in 1955, this uh, there's a gathering of family doctors in L.A. and these two emissaries from the sports world, the head football coach of UCLA and the head men's um, Olympic coach, addressed this gathering of pediatricians and family doctors, and they said, the kids we get into our programs today, we have to build muscle instead of stretch muscle for the first time, and they pointed directly to the automobile. They said kids would rather jump in a car today than they would strike out on foot. So they were noticing then that even the physiques of children – and young men had started to change. And I think, uh, boy, if you look back, um, yeah, and there's been studies in this regard, but I think, I think a lot of the social ills, from obesity to mental health issues uh, that we deal with today um, as a population, you can, you can point directly to the fact that we're not walking like we used to. Six million years we relied on our feet for 
you know, is the number one source of locomotion. It's only been in the past 100, 150 years that we've had the option to uh, sit and ride rather than walk, and we've chosen that. Yeah, and I noticed that was a theme of your book, and I think I remember somewhere in there that anthropologists thought that uh, early man walked like 20 miles a day. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe with all the media attention, your book, a couple Hollywood movies, this podcast, <laughs> maybe we'll get a resurgence in walking. Gosh, I sure hope so. I just read today, uh, my Google alert popped, and I read a story about a woman who uh, read the book. She was 67, and she's, she decided, what the hell? And she struck out, and uh, she pulled a back muscle about halfway through a through hike and came back the next year and just finished uh, just finished completing the second section. So she did, a, she did the whole thing uh, at the age of 68, and she said it was because she, she read this book. So... Um, Hey, yeah. So let's go back to what you said earlier, that Emma Gatewood did 14,000 miles once she hit 67, right? Did zero before that? Is that right? Well, she was she was not keeping track before that. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's she, fair. She, she would walk she, she walked friends a and whatnot, but, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hiking like, like she did later in life. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I think the, the point I was trying to make, and I did a poor job of it, was just that, um, you know, you don't have to be young to through hike. When I was going yeah. through been in 1994 i met a man that was 80 years old in vermont and he didn't go fast but he'd made it to vermont from georgia so wow you know that's that was impressive even back then did he finish do you know i don't know i know i have no clue he wasn't moving particularly fast then but i i gave him a tremendous amount of credit for making it that far yeah the the interesting thing to me we so we summited katahdin um in September of 2012, and I think it was the 25th, the same day Emma finished, uh, and just anecdotally, the, there were maybe 30 or so through hikers who had finished that same day, and so we got to witness their celebration. And anecdotally, they divided pretty distinctly into two demographics: uh, people who were, you know, young, uh, uh, late teens, early 20s, who could who didn't have the connections that sort of anchor you in the, the American society. you got to pay bills and the mortgage, and, the, and you can't get away for three months or four months to go through hike. And then people who had retired, and this was, you know, this was bucket list kind of thing. So it was like old people and young people uh, all, all finishing the same time. I don't know if the numbers bear that out, but I would imagine they, you know, they do. It seems like in your middle years you sort of get stuck and you can't, you can't get away. How old yeah, yeah, did yours? I was 26, and you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. There were two groups. There were people in their 20s and uh, people in their 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah. So when you, when you have a mortgage and a job and children that need things, you uh, don't get away easily. Right. Yeah. Hey, so do I understand this book became a New York Times bestseller. Is that right? It made the bestseller list in August of 2014, which was uh, very, very cool. Yes. Wow, that is awesome! Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I, it still blows me away, like that. You know, a bunch of people would want to read a story about an old lady taking a walk. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I'm I'm floored by that, and I, I feel very lucky and proud and it, proud to sort of try to stake out her place and you know in American history. And you just finished another book, right? Do you want to give the uh, listeners a uh, kind of preview of what's coming? Oh, absolutely. 
it's about another uh, heroic, uh, interesting woman. Uh, during World War II, there was a young, vivacious Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero who did a series of death-defying spy missions to help the U.S. win the Battle of Manila, uh, which was a sort of a turning point or a crucial moment in uh, World War II in the Pacific Theater. And she was good at what she did because she had um, leprosy. And the Japanese were uh, culturally horrified of uh, contagious disease. And so they kind of left her alone. So she mapped gun emplacements. She secreted explosives and spare tires. She took a very long walk to deliver uh, the map of a minefield to the advancing U.S. soldiers who were coming in from the north and, um, and saved hundreds of lives. And she was recognized for this with the Medal of Honor, uh, uh, which was the highest, um, uh, the highest uh, military medal that a civilian could get. And after the war, she was dispatched to live in this nightmarish uh, leper colony and kind of left there to die. And she was discovered there by some U.S. Army chaplains a few years later who realized who she was and what she had done. And they went on a letter-writing campaign back in the States to get her a visa so that she could get treatment at uh, the National Leprosorium at Carville, Louisiana. And if I told you any more, you wouldn't buy the book, but that's where it gets really interesting. No, it sounds sounds very interesting. Now, was, um, was, was the Grandma Gatewood book your first book? It was, my very first, yes. Wow, gosh, you're off to it. That's amazing to have your first book be a New York Times bestseller. That is, that is an accomplishment. I'm, uh, I'm pleased as punch. I really am. And the thing that makes me prouder, honestly, is, uh, is just, again, trying to uh, – feeling good about, about um, uh, knowing that uh, I helped to preserve the memory of uh, a woman who, you know, who did a lot for us all. Yeah, yeah, she certainly earned it, and, and I'm glad that someone finally got to tell the whole story because I don't think most people really knew the whole story of Emma Gatewood. So, uh, hey, so Ben, as a final question, how can the uh, listeners learn more about you? You know, learn more about your writings. Where can they find you? Do you have a website, a Facebook page? Yeah, uh, there's uh, there's a Facebook page for sure. Um, I'm on uh, Goodreads, uh, all of the different platforms, Amazon. Uh, but you you know, if you Google Ben Montgomery, I think you'll somewhere pretty high. You'll uh, you'll even see my email address uh, at the newspaper, and I'd love to hear from anybody who has any questions or just wants to say hey. Hey, I really really enjoyed the insight into the book, and and thanks for. Uh, coming on the show tonight ben you're a good man steven thank you so much absolutely and, and good luck with uh with the next one looks like you're off to a good start thanks i'm i'm excited to get out there it'll be out in no, uh november of this year so a few months away but uh yeah i appreciate it man okay well have a uh, have a great weekend and uh, i'll look out for your next book awesome thank you steven Thanks for listening to the N2 Backpacking Podcast. This is Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this podcast, visit Apple's iTunes store or download them directly at n2backpacking.com from the podcast tab on the secondary menu. Music from this podcast was provided by the John Zed Band. For more information on this Atlanta-based musician, visit his website at johnzed.com. 
johnzedd.com. That's johnzedd.com. Or search for his latest release through iTunes. This podcast is a production of N2 Backpacking and is copyrighted by N2 Ventures, Inc. For more information or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at N2 Backpacking. That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com.